Early, it is uh, great to see you and see so many of your uh, extended family here this morning. My extended family is here. We have 20 folks in my family. In fact, this whole section over here is my family. Like, just we'll count the Sorensons and the and Sandy Pollard and the Webers. We'll just kind of add you guys in. But uh, th- that's my whole family over there. So um, they don't bite. You can feel free to say hi to them. Uh, but uh, they're also going to be here tonight. My dad, as Ben mentioned, is um, going to be preaching on our final sola tonight, Soli Deo Gloria. Uh, and so I'm excited for you to get to hear him, who I learned so much from on how to preach and both how to, how to lead. And uh, so that'll be tonight. Come back and join us again at 6 o'clock as we worship the Lord. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 23 is where we're going to be. If you want to turn your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible, it'll also be up on the screen for you as well. Hear God's words. Therefore, have you, as you received Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used." According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This sends God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, we've been uh, working through this Christmas season what we call the solos of Christmas um, it's our attempt both to honor the Reformation, uh, which uh, we had the 500-year anniversary of that back in October, while at the same time going back to the principles and the, the foundations of our faith and what we believe, and even showing hopefully how they connect to Christmas in some way, shape, or form. We've been looking at, uh, the, we've looked at the first three in the last couple of weeks, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, which means that the one place we go for authority is the scriptures and the scripture alone. We looked at sola gratia, which is by grace alone, that you are saved, not by anything you have done, but you're saved simply by the gift of God, that you receive that gift by faith alone. 
which is, again, not by anything you have done. Faith is merely the instrument by which you cling to the grace of of God in Christ Jesus. And this morning we come to what all three of those point to, which is Christ himself, the object of our faith. All of the scriptures, sola scriptura, points to Christ. Jesus talks about this after his resurrection. He's on the road to Emmaus with a couple of the disciples, and he is talking about, and he says, he shows them and reads to them the Old Testament and shows how all the law and the prophets point to him. All the scriptures point to Jesus. All the scriptures flow out of Jesus. Sola Scriptura focuses on Christ. Grace, sola gratia, points to Christ. What is the gift that God has given to us? It is Christ Jesus. And faith, what is the object of our faith? You are not saved by your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, which is Christ and Christ alone. So that's what we come to focus on this morning. The way I want to introduce it is this way. What Christ came to be, and in this phrase, solus Christus, is it means Christ alone is the only mediator who can save you. The story of the Bible is this is that God created us for relationship with him, that we walked with God in the garden, we experienced intimacy and fellowship with God, and yet we rejected him. That's what we communicated in that confession of sin this morning. We rejected God. We, we said, God, we want nothing to do with you. We're going to trust ourselves, our own ability to do life. We pushed him aside. And ever since then, we have been seeking out other gods and other things that would make life right for us. But for those of us who realize that we cannot do right We cannot find the fulfillment and the joy that we long to have. And we realize that what we need is we need God back in our life. As we come very quickly to the reality is that there is now a widened gap between us and God. A gap that we cannot cross over. There is a gap between us and God. Between the creator and the creature. Between a holy God and an unholy people. Between a righteous, perfect God and a people who are not righteous. To say it gently. We need a mediator. We need someone who would come and stand in the gap, who would bridge the gap between us and God, between him who is beautiful and us who is ugly. And understand the relationship of the two parties that need mediation. The relationship is this. There's God on one side, on one cliff, and there's us on the other. And they are not equal parties. God has been faithful to us and we have been unfaithful to him. He has provided for us and we have scorned his provision. We have brought, he is the one bringing the indictment. He is the one bringing the accusation. And he is the one who will provide the mediator. One party is perfect. One party, us, has violated the other. And so what we need is a mediator, one who will come and stand in the gap, who's going to be provided to us by God, who can come and say, I am the means by which you can have a relationship with God once again. Who will bring these two people, these two parties back together. And this is the issue that Paul is addressing here in Colossians chapter 2. But what he is facing in Colossians chapter 2 is something even more specific. And what he's trying to communicate is that Jesus is the only sufficient mediator. And as he goes on in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 to great lengths to communicate that, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But the context of what he is dealing with in the the case of Colossians chapter 2 is that there are those who have entered into the church in Colossae, and they're coming in, as we read there in verses 16 through 23, in the verse part there in verses 8, who are coming in and saying, you need Jesus and. You need Jesus in a new way of thinking. 
You need Jesus and a moral record of your own. You need Jesus and religious traditions. You need Jesus and a new ethnic identity. You need Jesus and certain meals and holidays that you celebrate. In other words, what they're articulating is this, is what you need in order to bridge the gap between you and God. What you need for mediation is God and then whether they thought it was God takes up 90% of that gap and you take up 10% or 99 and 1%, whatever it may be, what Paul is coming in, what he's addressing in the Colossians 1 and in Colossians 2 is this, is that what you need is Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ and. And as we're celebrating the Reformation, remembering back on the theological battles that went on there, that reintroduced so many of these beautiful truths from the scriptures to the church and seeking to reform it, and bring it back to the heart of the gospel, as this is the same thing the reformers were pointing to. The issue in the medieval time is that people in the church of the Jesus Christ at that time, what was known as the Roman Catholic Church, is that people wanted to do the right thing, and the right thing was dictated to them and determined by the church. In particular, as a part of this, as you may remember from my, my opening illustration last week, from the Reformation Party, when Martin Luther nails those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, and one of the main things that, we're, we're, that, that they were most upset about in the Reformation were these things called indulgences. So you know why they had indulgences? Why they existed? It was a whole sense in which you did not have the full righteousness that you needed in order to get into heaven. That while God had saved you through Christ's work from hell that there was various punishments that you still had to endure as consequences to your sin. And therefore, they created this whole doctrine of purgatory, where you would go in order to pay for the rest of your sins before you could get into heaven, adding to the righteousness of Christ, something that you needed. And where they would get these, they would, they would, but you could move and buy your way out of purgatory by doing certain things, by doing certain good works, by praying certain prayers at a certain time of day, at a cer- certain times a day. You could even pay money in order to help support the church and build new buildings, and that would allow you to get out of purgatory more quickly and added to your righteousness. And they got this righteousness. It started out in a good way in the sense that they understood that Christ's work on the cross, that Christ's righteousness is so sufficient that you can buy Christ's righteousness from him in this way. But not only that, but there's also, you know, this whole idea of saints in the Roman Catholic Church, that there are saints who are so righteous and so wonderful that they have extra good works And you can buy their extra good works and you can apply them to yourselves or possibly even apply them to a dead family member who is idling away in purgatory waiting for the day in which they have truly paid for their sins. And the reformers are saying, one, the indulgence thing, this is a social justice issue. (laughs) But then two, they're also saying, this is not just a social justice issue, this is a theological issue. That what the Catholic Church at that time was communicating is that Christ's righteousness is not sufficient to save me. That it is not sufficient to bring me home. That it, I need Christ's righteousness and that Christ is not enough. And so what the reformers are saying and what Paul is clearly articulating in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2 is he's seeking to drive home this truth that what you need is Christ and Christ alone. Because of this truth, Christ is enough. He's enough. He's enough to save you. He is what you need. It is not Christ and. It is the Christian life, the whole joy of the Christian life is experiencing Christ and Christ alone. You know, this is the time of season where we uh, see a lot of uh, Peanuts characters, don't we? The various, the the Christmas, uh, 
the famous movie with the Christmas, they, they have the tree, Charlie Brown's awful Christmas tree. There's, there's a scene, not in there, but in another place of one of the Peanuts cartoons in which, it, in which it is Lucy interacting with Schroeder. You remember Schroeder? Schroeder is the highly cultured one in Peanuts. And he loves to play the piano, and Schroeder in particular loves Brahms. And so one day, Lucy comes to Schroeder, and he's beginning to play. He's listening to Brahms' music, and she comes to Schroeder. He, she says this. She asks Schroeder, are you going to dance to Brahms? Are you going to you gonna dance to the music and saunter all over the place? And, and Schroeder simply says, no. And then she says, is he going to march around the room and, and do a parade march? Is that what you're going to do to Brahms' music? And he says, no. And she says, are you going to listen to it and whistle to it and sing to it? And he says, no. No. Schroeder says, I'm simply going to listen to it. Because Brahms is enough. The enjoyment, that is the Christian life. The Christ is enough. In verses 9 through 15, Paul is trying to articulate why Christ is enough. I mean, and through that, I'm going to articulate to you what solus Christus means. Christ is enough, Paul says, for two reasons. Because for two reasons, Christ is enough. He says this in verses 9 through 15. Christ is enough because, first, he is the exclusive mediator. He is the exclusive mediator. This is a focus on the nature of who Christ is in his person. This is the focus on the incarnation of Christ. That's what we celebrate in Christmas, isn't it? Is the fact that God himself took on flesh. The second person, the Trinity, the Son of God, took on human flesh. And it says this in verse 9. Paul articulates this. For in him, him is Christ. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. What I want to communicate to you in this point is this, that only one who is fully divine and fully God can mediate the gap between God and man. Only the God-man could mediate. And that is what Paul is saying that Jesus came to be. Why is that important? Why is it important for Jesus to be both God, fully God, and fully man? Well, to, go to understand this, let's go to an odd place in the scriptures, perhaps, to Job. You may remember the story of Job. Job is a man of an unbelievable human suffering in which God allowed Satan to attack him, permitted Satan to attack him in his life. And he, Job was undergoing an, um, a terribly painful illness. And much of the book is taking up with, was taken up with Job's laments and pains. And at one point, he cries out saying, he's wishing for an audience with God. He wants to have an audience. He wants to go and have, let's have a talk, God. This, enough with this. And this is what he says in Job verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 32 and 33. He says this, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Do you understand what Job's problem is? Job says, I want to pray to God. I want to have a conversation with God himself. But he is, a, he is God and I am a mere man. So how in the world does a mere man have a conversation with God? I need, a, I need an arbiter. I need a mediator. I need someone. What does he say? How does he articulate that? Who has his hand both on God and on man. And that is what Jesus came to be. One who can have his hand on both parties. That is what a mediator does in some ways. A mediator needs to be able to represent both parties and needs to have authority to pass judgment on both parties, to articulate how to reconcile these parties together. And so that's what Jesus is. Only Jesus. He is exclusive in his personhood, in his nature. No one else is, claims to be fully God and fully man. And this is what Jesus claims to be, and this is what Paul claims Jesus to be. And I want you to see that Jesus in his humanity and his divinity is the one who is uniquely equipped to be our mediator. 
In his deity, Jesus fully discloses. He is the, and you could say it like this, Jesus is the perfect prophet. Jesus is the one who perfectly articulates who God is. He reveals all his glory. He talks about this in Hebrews chapter 1. He discloses all who God is. He represents God to mankind. Colossians chapter 1, Paul has gone to great lengths to show this, that Jesus is the Son of God. It says this in verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We needed the divine one to come and take on flesh, and so he did. And yet at the same time, humanity needs a representative to God. Jesus comes to be God's voice to us, God's great articulation of who God is, communicate to us who God is in all his glory, and yet we also need one who will represent us to God. In this way, Jesus takes on a priestly role. This is kind of using kind of Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, they understood that there was this gap between man and God. And so God, in his patience, provided a, 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 um, a lesser, a shadow of what Christ came to be, called the sacrificial system in which people would need a representatives to go before them, before God. And so what people of Israel would have is they'd have priests, and they would take these lambs, and they would slaughter these lambs, and they'd put all the sins of the people on these lambs and sacrifice them, saying that this is what our sins deserve. And they would take the blood of those lambs, and the priest would take it in the Holy of Holies and show it before the Lord, and he would be the representative before, the, before God for the people. He would be the one who mediates between God and his people. That how, how could a holy God be in the presence of an unholy people? We need a mediator. But the problem was, the problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system is we all know that sheep can't actually pay for our sins. They're lesser. And we all know the whole need that we needed was if you, have to, if you need a mediator between you and God, you had to have a priest who was perfect. Because a priest cannot mediate for you when he is full of sin, when he is imperfect. Now, why is that? Because he's too busy worrying about his own sins before God. The only way you can have a right mediator between a, a unholy people and a perfectly righteous God is if you have a perfectly righteous mediator who's also a man, who represents you rightly before God. And this is who Jesus came to be. And at the same time, one last, last role that Jesus plays is the mediator. He also plays the one who's in charge. It says there in verse 10, he is the head of all authority and rule. You need a mediator who has the right to judge. In other words, this is the kingly role that Jesus takes on. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. In all these roles, he points to his mediatorial role, that he is the one who can bridge the gap between us and God. Only Jesus, taking on a human and a divine nature, no one else has this ability. No saints, no angels, no pastor, and not even Jesus' mama can do this. The gospel is exclusive because we have an exclusive mediator. The only way to get back to God... The only way to make yourself right with God and all of our attempts, the only way is through Jesus because he's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who has the characteristics, who has the, 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 the genetics, you might say, to be the right mediator. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 communicates the exclusiveness of this Jesus and in his mediatorial role. He says this, there is one God. And only one mediator, he says, between God and man. John 14, 6, right, the very famous passage. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That is what is called a definite article, the the. That means he is not an optional way. One of many ways, in many truths, 
and many lives. He is the way. Christ is the only means by which we may be reconciled to God. Now, this is anathema to our modern years, is it not? This makes us feel icky inside. That there is something, there's something within us which violates our sensibilities. That there would be something so exclusive about Jesus. But this is simply inconsistency on our part. Because there are so many areas in life in which we are very, we are quite happy to have some exclusivity, aren't they? Aren't we? I was, uh, I was hanging out with a surgeon a, a couple weeks back, and she described herself as simply being a plumber of the body. And she was describing taking a blood vessel and creating it into being a main artery in the heart. Now, I was going, and she was saying, this is mere plumbing. And I was going, listen, that's cool, but I don't want just any Joe Plumber right, doing that on me. And instead, what had she gone through in order to feel so confident about this unbelievably complex plumbing move? She had gone through, gone to college and gotten what? Probably a chemistry degree or an organic chemistry degree or biology. And then she's gone, she'd gone on to medical school. And after finishing medical school, she had, uh, had to go do an internship. And then after being, getting done with the internship, she'd have to go do four years of residency. And then she had to go into her specialization for another three or four years. And then she could finally practice medicine as a doctor. Wouldn't we say that that is an exclusive way? There's exclusivity there that not everybody gets to have the words DR in front of their name and not everybody gets to do heart surgery on you. There's an exclusivity there. That we are happy for there to be narrow ways and for there to be hard ways because you want it to be hard for someone to do heart surgery on you. You want there to be a long and long path with much training. Now, if it is merely physical plumbing that surgeons are doing on us, how much more difficult is it for someone to come and make us right with God? To not just simply fix the plumbing of your body, but fix the plumbing of your soul. To fix the plumbing of your relationship with God. That's what Jesus came to be and to do, and he's the only way. He's the only one. He is the only one that God has provided. He is the only mediator. So it's Christ alone, and Christ is enough because of his exclusivity. Second, though, Christ is enough because he is the sufficient mediator. I would like to say maybe even this way, a different word, a successful mediator. No one else can be our mediator because no one else is who Jesus is. But no one else can be our mediator because no one else accomplishes what Jesus accomplishes. It refers to all that Jesus has done for us in his work. I want to communicate it this way. We often look at the life of Jesus and we look at it in four parts. You know what a symphony? A symphony has movements to it. And most often, this isn't always the case, but most often symphonies have four movements. And so does the gospel. The gospel is a symphony. Four movements to the gospel that are articulated over and over and over again in the New Testament. The four movements are this, are articulated in this way. First is Jesus' life. The fact that Jesus came to live a perfectly righteous life. We talked about this last week, that Jesus did not simply come to die for you. He came to live for you because you needed someone to die to pay the path, the, the penalty that you deserve. But he also, we also needed someone to give us a righteous record. He came to do that. That's what Jesus came to be. That's why he became a baby. We said this last week. Why didn't Jesus simply just show up at Jerusalem at the Passover and say, okay, guys, nail me to a cross? Because he wasn't simply dying for you, he was also building a record for you. He was building a life for you, a life of righteousness on your behalf. And so he enters in at Christmas time as a little one. So that's his incarnating life, his perfectly righteous life. Second part of the symphony is this, his atoning death, where he comes and he dies the death that we deserve, that he pays the penalty, the wrath of God poured out upon him to pay the debt that we deserve for our sins, to remove the sins from us. 
The third part of the symphony is his death-defeating resurrection. That Jesus didn't simply come to pay for your sins, but then he proved that all your sins are paid for by being raised from the dead so that the consequence of our sin in all of its fullness, death being the consequence, is taken away. So that death no longer has the sting, but for the Christian, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, it is now merely the door to salvation and glory and life. And the third aspect of the symphony is Christ's ascension. The fact that he was raised where he does what? He rules and reigns over all of eternity and over all things, which means this, there is nothing that can touch you. And this is what Paul walks through in this passage. He does it so in a little bit in a way that maybe a Jew would understand better than us in the 21st century. He talks about, he talks about this whole idea of Jesus' humanity and his deity. And then with that, he's pointing back to the fact that Jesus had to live a perfect life for us as a man. But not only that, you also see in verse 11, he pointed the fact that Jesus paid the debt for our sin and our sinfulness. And he uses this terminology of circumcision. Look at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, okay, it's Christmas Eve. We're right, here we are, we're talking about circumcision. I mean, this is, this, like, this is, this is tough. Paul, Paul is communicating that the putting away of our sin is through this image of circumcision. This is not something we want to be talking about on Christmas Eve, is it? Although I will say this, if you get into a bind tomorrow with your family talking about Trump, like Trump comes up and you're like, oh no, there's the awkward silence. You can just do this, circumcision, yeah? <laughs> Let's talk about that. Here's what circumcision is. All right, we're laughing. Can we handle this? Circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of males. Now, the reason Paul is using the circumcision image is specific is because there are those who are entering the church of that day who are saying this, that you, if you're going to be saved, that you have to be, you need the saving work of Jesus, and you must become a Jew. And therefore, you must take on the sign of Jewishness, which is circumcision. And therefore, they are adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying that Christ, Christ is all the circumcision that we need. Now, this is, again, you're like, this is, I don't like having Christ and circumcision put together. But that is what he's saying. What he's saying, in all going back to the Old Testament, that circumcision is a sign of ugliness, of nastiness. And then what he's saying is that what we don't need is actually is the physical circumcision. What we need is a circumcision of our heart. It says that we need a circumcision of our flesh. What that's, what's that, in the Bible, when it talks about flesh, that describes to all of your wicked anti-God desires. And so what Paul is saying is that what Jesus came to do is to cut out of you your old, dead, useless, anti-God heart that is nasty in the sight of God. Nasty in, in much the same way that we would think of a foreskin being nasty. That is the graphic imagery that Paul and all of the scriptures has used. And yet what he is saying is the means by which this heart of flesh, this gross heart, this heart is that is anti-God is cut out of us, is through, he says, the circumcision of Christ. Now when was Christ circumcised for you? Well, that's what happens on the cross. On the cross, in the afternoon, on that dark and stormy night, Jesus was cut. He was cut. The thorns in his brow, the spear in his side, the nails in his hands, he was being cut. And he said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It was him being cut off from his relationship with God. He took on not just your sin, but your sinfulness. And we say we're, in Isaiah 53, this articulates this, that this is what is going to happen. 
That it wasn't simply a, simple, a physical cutting. In Isaiah 53, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was trushed, crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. For by his wounds we are healed. And it says this, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He became, he was circumcised. He was cut off. And in so doing, you died. Your nasty heart went with him, was buried in the grave. When Christ was cut off, he took your, not just your deeds of sin, but your sinful heart. You see, it wasn't just your record that needed mediating with God. It was your person. It wasn't just your sin that was nasty before God. It was, yes, the sinner was nasty before God too. And so that had to be rooted out. That had to be paid for. That had to be mediated. But it doesn't go on. He moves on. Paul goes on, verse 12. He also defeated death for us, the consequence of sin. He said this, having been buried with him in baptism, that means you're connected to Christ in death, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. That means you were dead in all of your sinfulness, in all the nature, the nastiness of of your nature. God made us alive together with him. That means you were raised to new life. And you're, you're taken from spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. You were ultimately, and ultimately because of that, you will receive physical resurrection as well. That you've already received spiritual resurrection, and Christ is alive in your life and making you new, has made you new, and is making you new. And that one day you will also receive a new body in resurrection as well as he did. Jesus took away the sting of death by entering into death for us. And destroying it from the inside out. Then we also see that he plays the king role in his ascension and his ruling. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What I want you to see is that Christ is the arbiter. He is the mediator as the judge and as the king in completing. He doesn't just complete our reconciliation with God, but he protects that reconciliation with God. Do you understand this? That it is not just the fact that our problem is not just that we have a separation from God, but all the devil and his minions and all upstart rulers of the world would like to keep that separation happening. When I marry people at the very end, when I declare them married at a wedding, I say this, what God has brought together, let no man rend asunder. That means let no man separate. What we understand is all the principalities, all the authorities, all the dominions, yes, that spiritual realm and the physical realm, whether it be kings on this earth or the minions of Satan, what they are seeking to do is they are seeking to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, to separate us from the reconciliation that is won for us in Christ Jesus. But what this is communicating is Jesus says, not only have I won for you the right to be reconciled from God, to God, but also in my death and resurrection, I protect you as king from all these other things that would seek to rend you asunder from God. He has defeated, he has triumphed all over all the forces of evil. And he did it through the cross. Luther talks about this in the Reformation, he didn't just talk about it, he wrote songs about it, didn't he? The most famous song coming out of the Reformation was a song by Luther called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it goes like this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his triumph, to in, tri- triumph through us. The prince of darkness dream, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And what I want you to see in all of these things is that nothing can separate you from God. And nothing else can reconcile you to him. Jesus did the entire reconciling work, and he does all the protecting work to keep that separation from ever happening again. 
You had a bad record. He replaces it with this perfectly righteous record. You had a bad heart, and so he gives you a new heart and a new life. You had a bad verdict of judgment, a verdict of death upon you, and he took the verdict upon himself. You had a bad world full of enemies that hate you and that hate God and hate your relationship with God, and yet he puts them aside. With, he destroys them to the cross. Jesus has done all that is necessary to bring you home. That word all is critical. He has not done most or the vast majority of which he has done all that is necessary to bring you home. And I want you to see the heart of your mediator, Jesus. We, think, we tend to think about mediators in legal terms, in which you need legal mediation. But the mediator, the mediator serves a couple different directions. A mediator has to serve the law, right? A mediator has to, who, who to lay down um, arguments and lay down a rule that is, serves the law, that is in keeping with the justice of the law. But he also serves the two parties that he's mediating. So it's both the greater party and the lesser party. And so the dilemma for our mediator is this. If the mediator serves the demands of justice and the law, then the longings and the needs of the clients would not be served. Because the longing of God the Father is to be reconciled to these sinners. And the greatest need of the sinners is to be reconciled to God. And so if he keeps up the law, what happens? The sinners go bye-bye, and there is no reconciliation. The sinners deserve death. So there is no reconciliation. So God doesn't get what he wants, reconciliation with us, and we don't get what we need. If the lesser of client paid, there's no more relationship. But if the mediator allowed for no payment, then the justice of the law would not be done. He would not be keeping legal justice. So what does this mediator Christ do? He gets personally involved, doesn't he? He doesn't simply say, well, that's the law, tough. He says, no, I will take on the penalty of the law upon myself. This is a different kind of mediator. This is not just a legal mediator. This is a relational mediator. Jesus Christ looks at us and says, justice demands your death, but your, de- your death would mean separation from God for all of eternity. And God the Father, the heart of God the Father, wants and longs to be with you, and so I will take your penalty so that I can be rejected so that you can receive the acceptance of God. This is what it talks about here in Colossians. Because he nailed your record to the cross. There is nothing that keeps you between you and God any longer. He paid it all. And that means there's nothing left for you to pay for. There's nothing left. I think this is, this is the greatest line in all of hymnody, and we'll sing it in just a minute. It is from a line about, of him about suffering. Perhaps you'll recognize it. It's the most self-conscious writing I think I've seen in hymns. It goes like this, my sin, comma, and the writer has to stop. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, and then he continues, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. The doctrine, that, that truth comes right out of Colossians 2. I bear it no more, not in part, but the whole. Solus Christus means this. Here's your definition for you theological eggheads out there. It's this. That Jesus Christ, by virtue of his person and his work, is the exclusive and sufficient mediator between God and man. There's no one else. There's no other option, and there's no one else who works. Acts 4.12 says it like this, if you just simply want the scriptures to tell it to you. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay. So that's, that's why Jesus 
is enough. That's why Christ is enough. Lastly, just want to end with a few minutes, we'll flip it. So if Christ is enough, what does that mean for us? These are the implications. Because Christ is enough, therefore, and we like alliteration, right? You, you don't, you know, it helps your brain. So we'll go three R's from this text. Receive him, root yourself in him, and reject everything else. Receive, root, and reject. The call of this, of this passage is this. If Christ is enough, and if Christ is the only sufficient means to make, yourself, make you right with God, then you must receive him. Which we talked about last week in regards to faith alone. That all you have to do is receive him. And faith is merely the instrument. It is not a work of your own. It is a falling at the feet of Jesus. It is a falling at the cross and saying, I've looked and there is no one else to save me. I've tried. I tried doing it myself. I looked to my mom. I looked to my dad. I looked to my friends. I looked to my boyfriend. I looked to my spouse. I looked to my kids. I looked to my job. Nothing else works to make me right with you. I've tried. And men have tried. Let me give you a historical perspective to this on the, how, how great Jesus is in comparison to everybody else. It, I, I think it's best articulated from Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was an atheist during World, because of World War II and the suffering he saw there. Then he actually encountered Mother Teresa in India and saw the love, the beauty of Christ Jesus that poured through with her and said, Oh my goodness, where in the world could you get a love like this? And she told him. And he became a Christian. And Muggeridge was writing in the 1970s, is pondering on the, on the supremacy of Christ Jesus. And he says this. This is a lengthy quote, so bear with me. But he says, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare is written of the rise and fall of the great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my fellow countrymen, Great Britain. Once upon a time, we dominated the, a quarter of the world. Most of us convinced in the words of what is still a popular song that the God who has made us mighty shall make us mightier yet. I've heard a crazed and cracked Austrian, he's referring to Hitler, announce to the world that the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown, that would be Mussolini, say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, that would be Stalin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as being wiser than Solomon and more humane than Marcus Aurelius. All in one lifetime, though, all in one lifetime, they are all gone. They're gone, gone with the wind. England, now part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened by the dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. All in one lifetime. In one lifetime, they have risen and they have fallen. They are gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom and by whom and in whom and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. I present him to you now as the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know him? Do you trust him? And do you trust in him alone? He asked. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and if there is no one else like him, you must go to him, you must fall on your feet to him, and you must receive him and all that he has done for you. That's the first implication. The second is this. You must root your life in him. 
This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying to the Christians, he's actually not speaking to a non-Christian audience. He's speaking to a Christian audience. He's speaking to a church people. And the threat is this, is people are coming in and they're saying this, listen, what you need is Christ and. And what Paul comes and does is he introduces four participles. He says, what you need is to go back and to be rooted and built up and established in what? In the gospel. Having been firmly rooted, it is, it is something that you have been, you've done in the past, and now he's saying what you must continue to do if you want to grow as a Christian. The way you grow, the way you progress as a Christian is to do the same thing that you did at the beginning. How did the Colossians start? Well, look back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. He says this to the church in Colossae, Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. How did they start? How did they start their growth? How did they start? How did they move towards reconciliation with God? How did that happen? By trusting in the gospel. By trusting in the good news of what Jesus has done for them. And so how will they continue to grow? Do they continue to grow by adding to the work of Christ? By rooting, uprooting and saying, I'm going to plant myself over here? No. He says, no, what you must do is you must root yourself in what you've already been taught. I like that word rooted. They articulates it well. If you want to produce, if you want to plant to produce fruit or to grow, is it helpful to, for that uh, that plant to start its root system and then every couple weeks you kind of pick it up and move it somewhere else? That is not a way to help a, true, a tree grow or become fruitful. And yet that's so often the way we, we function as Christians. We say, ah, this Jesus thing isn't working for me. I ain't feeling so right. I need a different experience. I need a different book. I need a new church. I need new friends. But it's so simple what we actually need. Let's say it this way, what we need. We don't need more than Christ. We need more of Christ. We don't need more than Christ. We need more of Christ. We don't need more than the gospel. We need to know the gospel more. This is what John Newton, a famous saint and preacher, said in praying for a friend. He articulated this, that the whole of life is to root yourself more and more in the grace of God. He says this, he prayed it for a friend. I wish for you, my dear friend, that you may grow in grace. And the knowledge of Jesus. To know him is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is what it is to grow in grace. And to know him perfectly is eternal life. And if you're a Christian who's waiting for eternal life, right now you're in that mark in the middle. To the, grow, the way I grow in grace is to know Jesus better. Not something else. Not some experience. Christ and his work is the beginning and the end of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. It is the Alpha and the Omega. Listen, you don't need a new worship experience. You need to go back to the old one. You don't need a new love. You need to go back to your first love in Christ Jesus. You need Christ time and time again. I love the song. It was sung by so many different people. My favorite version is by Fernando Ortega, in which he says, In the morning when I rise, give me what? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. In all seasons, in all times, in all aspects of the day, this is what I need. Third, Third invocation, reject, pick your R word, reject, repel, resist, whatever you want to say, all attempts to add to Jesus. Repel, reject, anything else. And this is what Paul's talking about here in that whole second aspect of the passage. The reason why I read all that stuff. I'm not going to go in and articulate what all those different things he's talking about. What I want to say is this, is once you start adding to the person of Christ, you begin taking away from him. 
If you add to Jesus, you take away from his sufficiency. Once you say that Christ needs the church, so you need Jesus and the church in the sense of for salvation purposes, then you've taken from Christ. I need Jesus and I need a priest to mediate between me and God. I need Jesus and his mama to mediate between me and God. Then we've, we've, we've taken away from the sufficiency of Jesus. As soon as you say you go from Christ alone, you go from, you go, you want to add, when you add to Christ, you go from Christ alone to Christ alone. And soon it'll be Christ kind of on the side. C.S. Lewis, I think, articulated this well in his book, Screwtape Letters, in which, it, if you've never read Screwtape Letters, I have no idea the, the psychological state Lewis was writing in when he wrote this book. But it's a book, the, the book is, is like Uncle Screwtape, he is, a, he is a, kind of a colonel demon writing to his nephew, who's kind of a, a new demon, and how to tempt Christians. And Uncle Screwtape says, writing to his nephew, Wormwood is the name of the, of the nephew. And in the letter, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, he to, says this, I would encourage you, that a, some, a Christian should always be Christian and. Christian and politics. Christian and tradition. Christian and. Christian and. Never let them believe in a mere Christianity. So what is it you add to Christ to bridge the gap? What is it you add between you and God? What are you trying to do to supplement Christ? When you are going through a dry season, through a difficult season of suffering, do you move from Christ and you could try to find some other experience? Or do you go back and root yourself even more deeply there? Steve Timmons is a pastor I enjoy listening to, and I think I'm going to end with a quote he says here. Don't detract from Christ by adding to him. Don't despise him by trying to augment him. Don't demean him by trying to supplement him. Don't discredit him by trying to finish a work that he declared on the cross is finished. That's what it means to serve Christ, put your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Merry Christmas, let's pray. Gracious God, if, I, if we could simply dwell on the one thought that it is not my sin in part, but it's the whole. That when Christ died for me, he bore my eternal wrath, He bore all the punishment that I deserve. There is no punishment left for me. He bore the severe consequence of death. He took it all. And so, gracious God, I pray that we as a people would reflect, and Lord, where we are adding to you, where we are undermining your sufficiency by adding to you, where we are undermining our joy and our peace by adding to you. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would look to you time and time again, like that song, we would get up in the morning and we'd say, Christ, Christ is what I need. Christ is my joy. Christ is my sufficiency. So we praise you in, in, through the work of Jesus Christ that we can say that. That is truth. It's in his, his name we pray. Amen.